When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. On today's episode, we're sending Jurgen Klopp to manage in MLS. We're looking back on Jurgen Klinsmann's USMNT reign and we're assessing our own worst takes. Oh boy, my name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to say things back to me when I say them to him, it's Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello, it's a Jurgen-heavy episode. If only one of us had takes on a different Jurgen, we could have made it a three for three. Alas, alas. Could have gone Jurgen Cubed instead of Jurgen Squared. You're quite right, Taylor. That's a shame. We missed an <laughs> I really cannot think. Jurgen Sommer? Is that a person? I forget. There's definitely another Jurgen in there somewhere. Uh, well, there's definitely another Graham in here. Graham Rutherland's joining us. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Seeing as you're not wishing it to me, I thought I would, uh, I would, I would wish it to you. I, uh, I just, see how this relationship works. Just gets to the next line in the script. Wow. Happy Valentine's Day, Graham. There you are. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Ryan. You know me, just doling out love on a daily basis. That's... Uh, that's that's what I do, I guess. That's right. I, I presume you've been prancing the streets of your neighbourhood, uh, dishing out <laughs> Valentine's cards, giving candy to children, and of course, firmly shaking the hand of your wife. Yeah, we acknowledge <laughs> each other from opposite ends of 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 the room. That's uh, our Valentine's Day. That that's the plot of most rom coms wow. in Scotland, to be fair. Same room. What a special day. I know. I like it. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, joining us also, our own little Casanova, Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, fellas. Happy Valentine's Day. I didn't know we were going to acknowledge and, and really sort of lead with Valentine's Day on this episode, but I am, I'm thrilled that we are. It's great to see you guys. It is indeed. Um, Joe, uh, backheeled. Valentine's gift seems to be MLS previews dropping left, right and center. Thank you for your gift to everybody there. You're welcome. They are cheaper than the Charlotte FC 2024 primary kit and every other MLS primary kit. Like I, I think I mentioned very briefly on yesterday's show, we have done detailed previews on all 29 MLS teams that are going to be something like 45,000 words across the entire league, which is entirely too big. Um, my wrists, this is so pathetic and I'm never going to say it again, but my wrists are genuinely tired from typing so much over the last two weeks. It's been a lot of words. Yeah, well, I think I think around 45K, 40, 45K, we're right in that range. 45,000 words. Um, Did you find some of those Bradley Cooper limitless pills, Joe, yeah, lying yes. around somewhere? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. And now I'm going to use all of that energy to um, protest MLS having so many teams in the first place. But I think overall, they're really, really good. I, I'm actually very proud of them. So go check them out on Backheel.com. And we've got tons of really great preview coverage coming here on the feed next week. There you go. Uh, listener, Joe's got tired wrists on Valentine's Day. Let's note that down. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show <laughs> if you'd like our bonus content. Uh, we've got bonus videos there, bonus episodes, and of course, access to our Discord where all the cool kids are hanging out. Also, we're there too. Uh, if you want to see Taylor make delicious McRib sandwiches, Joe playing oh, beautiful so piano, good. and Graham watching soccer on artificial turf while eating pies, there's your destination.
Thank you very much if you support us there already. Why don't we get to the listener questions, gents? Let's start off with Lawrence Yee, who says, as per any international tournament, do you see any CAF or AFC players getting a significant move after their performance in their respective tournaments? Let's go to you first, Graham. Who's hot on the old radar after these two big international tournaments? So right at the top of my list, I know there, uh, there was some hype about Lamine Kamara before the, the tournament, but I can't imagine his performances at AFCON have done any harm to his um, his stock. I know Senegal end up going out relatively early, but I still think he was relatively impressive. He is at Mets in Ligue 1 at the moment. I would be shocked if he is still there by the, the time the summer transfer window closes. Uh, a couple more candidates from uh, AFCON, not a young player, but... William Trustacong, one of my favourites, he was excellent for Nigeria, actually did win the official Player of the Tournament award, which I think is the first time that's ever been handed to someone who genuinely was maybe the best player at the tournament. And I do wonder if a club might fancy him in the summer. He's at Pauk right now in Greece, so uh, he would surely fancy a crack at one of the big European leagues. Although Pauk are... uh, Joe and I were laughing about this. I was messaging, messaging in Slack. Poker actually pretty decent at the moment. I've made, I've mentioned a couple of times that I don't know what he's doing there. I think they're top of the Greek league. They absolutely smashed Hearts and Aberdeen in European qualification earlier this season. So I have watched them a little bit, and I've seen some Saudi links with Trusta Kong. So maybe he ends up um, there. A couple more candidates: Stanley uh, Nwabali who's the Nigerian goalkeeper. He was impressive during the tournament, obviously an important part of that defence, which ended up getting Nigeria all the way to the final. He is currently playing in the South African League right now, has never played in Europe, so wouldn't surprise me. I think he's 27 years old off the top of my head, so wouldn't surprise me if, if, if he got a move. And then finally... I wonder how many European scouts are looking at some of the South Africa squad and specifically the Mamelodi Sundowns players. Uh, uh, Mokoena, who is a defensive midfielder for South Africa, he was excellent at this tournament. And there have already been some links with Premier League clubs. His agent has spoken about it publicly, which tells me he's trying to tout him around, take those links with a grain of salt. But nonetheless, I think there might be some interest in him as well. Excellent, Graham. A couple of points of order. When we say Pauk on this podcast, we say it like Rob Riggle and Step Brothers. We say Pauk like that, uh, just so you know. And also, uh, was that the first time uh, you said it was the first time and a player of the tournament award has been rightfully awarded? Is that your hot take for any tournament? Well, I think that's just common knowledge, isn't it? Like they just give it to whoever the biggest name is who scored a goal in the final. Usually, is how, huh. is how they kind of the hack. That thing. Graham is yeah. to get rid of all the big names before the final, basically, which is what <laughs> Afcon did for us this year. Yeah, They're true. playing 4D chess. Fair enough. I, I suppose we have seen Messi sheepishly go up for his Player of the Tournament awards more than yeah. once. That is fair. Donnarumma won it at the Euros, the last Euros Player of the Tournament award because he was good in a penalty shootout in the final. Yeah. They just thought, ah, oh, you're here. You're close enough. We'll just give you the award. <laughs> Weirdly, fair it was Antonio Donnarumma, too. It wasn't even the good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a matter of perspective, I suppose. Taylor, where did you land with this question in terms of the players you see maybe getting a big old move? Well, first of all, pow, pow, pow. Uh, second Thanks. of all, uh, in, in answer to the question <laughs> itself, my answer was no. I don't see a lot of players making moves, largely because the window is closed. And so the hot hand has to stay hot basically until the summer when the window opens back up. Uh, I think Graham covered a good number of names that could move. I think with a lot of those names, though, they are closer to 30 or already over 30. And that is where I I sort of also came back to my answer largely being no, is that I feel like a lot of the performers were sort of at an age where maybe that move 
isn't going to happen because it's not sort of getting the player when they're like really on fire in the moment. And then you get a couple seasons out of them. It feels like in the summer, you're going to bring somebody in who might be 29 or 31. There's not really a sell on value there in terms of players where I think you could get some value. It is largely players who were in the final. I think uh, Simon Adingra uh, from of the Avery coast. He had a, a brace of assists in the final. Uh, he's already at Brighton, but if he has maybe a strong second half of the season there, maybe a larger Premier League club comes in for uh, a creative and young attacker. Franck Kessier is another one. He's only 27 years old. Feels like he could be good in the Premier League. I had to check to see if he had already played for Chelsea because he feels like somebody who went to Chelsea and then didn't play. He is not. I think I'm, I might be thinking of Bakayoko. Uh, but it requires getting him out of Saudi Arabia, which means I'm going to assume some sort of pay cut. Uh, so that could be tricky. But he, I think, could be a really good midfield performer for any number of clubs. I think Victor Osimhen will move. I'm not sure if that's because of this tournament, more so because he's just very, very, very good. Largely, I don't think we're going to get a ton of hype coming out of uh, either AFCON or the Asian Cup uh, because that window is closed, because there's a lot of veteran players, and because the players that did stand out, I think, largely are, are pretty known quantities already. Joe, anything to add on this one? So my list for AFCON, which is longer than my list for for the Asian Cup, just because of what we chose to cover more often, frankly, on this episode, I had Truce Kong as well, Graham's favorite. I had Ronald Williams, South African goalkeeper. Uh, Graham, you mentioned the Sundowns as well, so there's overlap. Lamine Kamara was on my list still, and I also had Kamori Dumbia, who played as a number 10 from Mali in this tournament. He, he's not the highest profile player in that Mali midfield, but he was good in this competition as Mali made a bit of a run and has been strong for Brest and Liga over over in France. So, I, again, I don't really think it's going to be because of his performances in this tournament, but I would expect either you know this summer or sometime in the following season, he'll make a move most likely higher up the table in Liga. And then o- over in Asia, the one name that I had on my list is, is one, frankly, that I don't think is going to move. It's Akram Afif. I talked about him in the lead-up to the World Cup for Qatar. He's their number 10, sort of second forward playmaker. Had that hat trick. Ryan loves his magic abilities. Mm. Like, I mean, he, he really is the total package. He's moving to the magic castle, Joe. That's yeah, what he's doing. Exactly. I, I just don't I just don't think it's going to happen. Like, a lot of these players for Qatar don't tend to move. And Afif is one of the ones, actually, that has. He's played in Spain and Belgium. But, like, he's, he's back. So I don't expect that really anything has changed enough to where teams are going to be banging down the door to sign him and, and Qatar are going to you know, have that make sense. So, yeah, I, I ultimately agree with Taylor's overarching point. I don't think the timing nor the quality nor the like really unexpected individual standouts are there to spark a major yeah. transfer trend. I think that's a factor as well, Joe, with uh, Musa Al-Tamari, who I mentioned, I think, last week as one of the, the players of the, the tournament in, in the Asian Cup for, for Jordan. If you look at his transfer history, he's only just made the move to Montpellier in, in Ligue 1. He became the first Jordanian player to, to play in a, a top five European league. They paid a, a pretty decent fee to sign him from uh, Leuven in, in, in Belgium. So I I'm not really sure he's going to get another step up on the basis of his his Asian Cup performances. So I I struggled more with the Asian Cup players, largely because I watched a lot less of the Asian Cup than I did AFCON. I'll acknowledge that right at the top. But yeah, it felt like I I had an easier time coming up with uh, CAF players who might use this as a springboard. Yeah. Uh, for me, Graham, it's all about Gael Kakuta. Only 32 years young. He's only got 16 teams on his Wikipedia <laughs> at, the, at this point. He needs that big move up for me, frankly. I mean, you know, Jack Grealish injured 
Man City are calling at some Man point. Man City, wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's going straight straight to the top. I mean, That's when you I'm see saying. him play as he did at AFCON, I'm, I'm just annoyed that he wasn't playing there his, uh, his whole career. That was his calling. He could have been the, the next Xabi Alonso or something like that. Yes, indeed. All right, Lawrence, thank you very much for that question. We go now to Michael Nunziatu and a question that all my TSS friends are very excited to answer here. Here we go. If a mid-tier MLS team in solid contention for the playoffs uh, played in this year's AFCON tournament, how far would that team get? Taylor's just itching to answer this question. I can see it in his eyes right now. Uh, I believe Ryan Joe said he desperately wanted to answer this question first, but oh, yeah. I will do my best. I will do my best. Um, I am going to take the easy cop-out answer and say, are we keeping the same schedule? Because if so, I don't know how well they're going to do because it's preseason for MLS teams if they're playing uh, a January, February competition. So I think similar to what we've seen in the CONCACAF Champions Cup, formerly known as the CONCACAF Champions League, it can be difficult when teams are playing preseason games as an actual competition. But if we were saying that maybe like it were moved this summer when an MLS team is in midseason form and has figured some things out, I think there's a chance they make it uh, somewhat deep into the tournament. As strange as that might be, I think especially given how many of the big teams were under underperformed in this particular iteration of the tournament, and that's what we're talking about. I feel like if they got a a good draw in the knockout round or on, or were on the right side of the bracket, I feel like a, a mid-tier MLS team could have made it maybe to the corners, maybe even further. Hmm. Joe, what do you think about this? Michael says he's a Timbers fan, for example. Could we see the Timbers going deep into the knockouts in AFCON? Should they have played over the last few weeks? Uh, yes, I can very much. It's, it is difficult. And Taylor, my brain went where your brain went in terms of what are the logistics? What's the timing? Does the club team get to practice like a club team or do they have to meet every, you know, month and a half, like an international team? I don't know the answer. Yes, yes, Uh, no. uh, oh, I forgot what I said and all that stuff. So I'm not going to be able to follow you on that one, Ryan. I'd love to yes and you, but unfortunately I cannot. Uh, I think generally for the Portland Timbers, maybe we give them, they only have one DP right now and they're talking a big game about adding like two really big players. Who knows if that's going to happen, but maybe we give them one more, assuming that they'll add one more pretty early on in the season. So we'll give them two DPs. If we give them the usual benefit of their like, you know, club training frequency where they're training like six days, five days a week, I guess. They, they could make a run to the final. I think that is entirely realistic. If not, and they have to train like a national team, I think they could make a quarterfinal or a semifinal run. We saw in this year's AFCON, like the big teams didn't really play like big teams. You know, we had Nigeria and Ivory Coast, two of the favorites. Or, no, Ivory Coast was Nigeria, maybe a little bit outside that group. But two strong sides make it all the way to the final. But we're incredibly underwhelming along the way. And how many big nations do we see flop? Like Egypt, Algeria, there were a bunch of countries that just didn't show up in this tournament. We saw Cape Verde make a deep run, and their starting 11 features two MLS players. Like, one, Jamiro Montero has been a kind of mediocre designated player, and Steven Moreira was excellent last year for the crew. But a lot of that, I think, goes to Wilfred Nance and a change of role rather than him being, like, this generational defensive talent. So I, I don't think the overall talent level in AFCON is especially high across the board such that a mid-tier MLS team like the Timbers, who were you know, one, of the, one of the worst teams in the Western Conference last year, I don't think it's impossible for one of them to make a run if they were to enter it in their current form. I, yeah, and, and to go back uh, to a point, I think Joe and I largely agree. And then I would say there's also, if we're going with, with a club team who are somewhat stable, that stability is also an advantage because so many teams at this year's AFCON 
had managerial strife coming in or federation strife or payment issues or whatever it might be, I think there were off-field distractions that that were sort of impactful on on-field performance. And if you're able to remove those from an MLS team, I do think that puts them in a stronger position as well. Also, when we're talking mid-tier MLS team, if nine teams each make the playoffs and yeah, there are, what, 29 teams? So that, is that mid-tier? Isn't that sort of like if you are the 20th team out of 29, is that mid-tier or is that closer to the bottom? Well, I mean, by definition, yes. it's closer to the bottom. Cool. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, you could even take up the quality a little bit here. But, like, I think generally speaking, the answer is probably the same. I think a really good MLS team would have a pretty good shot of winning this thing. The, the difference for me is with the star power, right? You look at someone like Victor Osiman, even even some of the different talent that the Ivory Coast have, Sebastian Haller. Like, MLS doesn't have those players, right? Th- those players aren't coming to Major League Soccer. They're going and playing in the Champions League every single year in Europe. Like that's that's what MLS absolutely cannot match because players just of that caliber just simply don't want to go to MLS, which is absolutely understandable. But I think when it comes to depth and even those sort of mid-tier players, most MLS teams have more of them than most teams at AFCON, and that's probably enough to help them make a deep run against that kind of competition. Joe, if I could remember DC United's new designated player, I would dunk all over you with the quality and and uh, caliber of the names that MLS Maddie has. Maddie Petola but I can't, doesn't, so I can't. Uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't do it for you, huh? <laughs> not yeah. so much. Gra- Graham, I'm not sure I'm quite as bullish as Taylor and Joe on, on the potential for a mid-tier MLS team to go deep in AFCON where there are fish out of water, where you know there are, as Joe says, high-caliber players involved. What say you? Um, yeah, I kind of took this question slightly differently in that I am assuming that we are dropping, as you kind of referenced, uh, Ryan, we're just dropping an MLS team into the start of AFCON. So they're out of they're out of form, they're in a different scenario, different country, different culture, different continent, different everything. And so I kind of, I, I, and with that as the parameters, I kind of agree with you that I'm not quite as bullish. But if we're talking about the, the just the quality of the teams, I, I think I land pretty much in a similar place to... To Taylor and Joe, I guess that it comes down to where do you draw the line? We're in broad agreement that that club teams are generally better and stronger than international teams because of things we've talked about in the past, like time they have in the training pitch together, that cohesion. Um, it's where you draw the line of talent becoming a more important factor. Like I don't think Sterling Albion would would win Afcon, at least not since we lost uh, Kai Fotheringham. Uh, we've got no chance since we since, since we lost him. But um, it's about where you draw that line. So the best that I can do to kind of judge the quality is look at teams like Portland and San Jose. I took the part the part of the question that says on the bubble for the playoffs. I went kind of like around that region. Uh, San Jose, How the bubble, Charlotte. Bro? How big is it? Uh, it's not Charlotte are in the bubble. I think it's a bubble with them and a few other teams. Oh, so God, that's a big uh, bubble. It's <laughs> a big bubble, yeah. Uh, Montreal. Uh, so and then I looked at some of the the kind of lower caliber teams in Afcon, and I did a very quick salary comparison between what mid tier MLS teams are paying their players and what how that places them among the wage bill of Afcon teams. And obviously, this is not ideal because I'm comparing what those clubs from those national teams are paying those players. So anyway, it's a, it's a little bit. Um, kind of broad and simplistic, but it actually places them kind of highly. Um, so I, I had them making the last 16, and at that point, I, I think it depends on the draw to make a quarterfinal or, or, or further than that, because I, I do think once you get to kind of the Nigerias and Ivory Coast, I know Ivory Coast had a, a hot mess of a tournament that somehow ended up with them winning the, the whole thing. I think once you get to that standard of team, the talent might start to tilt it in their favour. 
All right, Michael, thank you very much indeed for your question. When we come back, we talk Jurgen Klopp. We talk about Jurgen Klinsmann. It's the Jurgen section coming up next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go now to a scenario from John Hoffler, who says, Jurgen Klopp drops another bombshell that his next managerial position will be in Major League Soccer. Which team would you like to see Klopp take over in this hypothetical scenario? And how much would that team be improved? Joe, what do you think? Clopper fornication in Los Angeles? Clopper yeah. Sota? New England Yergolution? I've got loads of these. How many do we do? New England Yergolution. Can you do the LA one again? Can you do that one? Because that's my answer, by the way. But I Dream of Clopper fornication. <laughs> okay, never mind. Yeah, I'm done with that. But okay. I do have LAFC as, as my top answer to this question. They were the team that jumped out to me first overall. Taylor's shaking his head. I don't know if it's at me and my answer or at Ryan and his song. It's Ryan's I'm ho- song. I'm hoping it's a lot. Right? Why not both? That's, that's good to know. Because um, my answer is good. That, that's why, Ryan. Come on. Uh, LAFC... <laughs> 4-3-3 shape, like to press already, could use a bit of refining in possession, and I think Klopp would absolutely do that, uh, especially as we've seen his Liverpool game model change over the years and then become more of a ball-dominant team. Not that they're Manchester City out there, but I think he ups that scale a little bit for LAFC. And relative to their competition, there is a similar talent level between Liverpool and LAFC, right? There's a, to be very, very clear, I am not saying that LAFC are as good as Liverpool, Relative to MLS, LAFC sort of are the Liverpool of Major League Soccer when you look at the quality that they have. I think that is an absolutely reasonable thing, and that would make them really fun because Klopp would immediately inherit a contender. Maybe along the way he can help unearth some talent in Los Angeles or or at least get the minutes in the first team in a way that no previous LAFC manager, either Bob Rowley or Steve Trundolo, seem all that interested in doing, and, and Klopp has done a good job of that, I think, with Liverpool. It's hard to tell with coaches, but to the to the part of John's question about how much they would improve, like it's it's a lot of ifs and you know things that are hard to read unless you're on the very inside of a club. It's hard to tell the impact that a coach can have, but I think generally speaking, Klopp would make LAFC clear favorites in the West, even with their current squad. They don't they don't have three DPs. They've just got one right now. Carlos Vela's contract is still you know not not resigned. He's he's at the moment a free agent, sort of just hanging out doing his thing. So they are my first answer. St. Louis, I think, is another good shout, just because yes. German. Um, but Klaus. LAFC are, are my uh, my top pick. He's Brazilian. <laughs> He's like the only person in that squad who isn't actually German. Germany. <laughs> He's German. in Germany. Fine. But, yeah. I think that's my answer, Joe, is, is, is St. Louis City, with the way they play, the high-energy game, and then all the Bundesliga and German things going on there. The other thing they've got is the crowds and the atmosphere and the culture, yeah. and I could imagine Klopp tapping into that just like he did at Dortmund and Liverpool. And that's the thing with Klopp, that the same reason I can't envisage him 
at Real Madrid or Barcelona is kind of the same reason I can't envisage him at, at the Galaxy or Inter Miami or any of the kind of marquee teams in MLS. Maybe LAFC are a slight difference because they do have that that culture and that atmosphere and that crowd. Um, but he, I, I generally think Klopp needs that that sort of underdog mentality that was at Dortmund and Liverpool as well. When he when he took over, Liverpool certainly have that underdog mentality and Liverpool as a city have that kind of underdog mentality. So that, that was one of my, my factors. Um, I've got St. Louis. Maybe Portland would have that kind of thing as well, although going from uh, Phil Neville to Jurgen Klopp would be like uh well it'd be like going it'd be going from uh, Phil Neville to Serena Wigman or Phil Neville to Tata Martino so maybe there's a trend there to follow Seattle maybe it works there as well with the crowd and and, and culture up there Columbus would work in a lot of ways so I Graham's can see just some listing overlap. MLS teams now that's what, yeah, Graham's now doing half of MLS I don't, I don't think if anyone has noticed but uh there's a lot of MLS teams <laughs> I've barely scratched the surface here uh Columbus they play in yellow and black as well you know we know we know Klopp looks good in yellow and black so I feel like I'm I'm, I'm losing kind of uh logical thought here with naming Bef- so many teams before Taylor names his team and maybe Ryan if, if he has a contender as well I, I want to ask this question is there a team in MLS who wouldn't ditch their manager tomorrow for Jurgen Klopp. I think there is one and only one at this point. And I'm curious to see if anybody else has similar thoughts. I'm Who's curious the who the one is, yeah. <laughs> I think I think the one is into Miami because of the Tata Martino-Messi yeah. connection. Yeah. I think they are pretty happy with that. I think Jurgen Klopp is probably a better coach than Tata Martino, but Messi seems to... <laughs> I mean, they don't have, they're not like buddy-buddy, but I think that connection there is important for them. I think you're right. They wouldn't ditch him, but the way Inter-Miami seems to work, they'd probably just hire Klopp and then make them co-managers sure. <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah. Just get them all in there. Let's that see. sounds about Let's right. See. Catch <laughs> them all. Catch them all. No, I, I mean, Joe, I think that is that is accurate. And it's where this question honestly gets kind of difficult, is that the answer is anyone would take Jurgen Klinsmann. And I was going to ask you, like... If he wants a, t- a, a team... Jürgen Klopp, just, not Jürgen Klinsmann, Taylor. Jürgen oh, yeah, Klopp. excuse me. Yeah, see? I've already got... I can't, I can't let you betray your own values now. like that, Taylor. i got That's Jürgen Klopp now uh, left. And then Jürgen Cook, uh, the 20-time Austrian badminton champion. Yes, what I looked up famous Jürgens. Um, Jürgen Melzer, <laughs> tennis player. All right, Graham, too far. <laughs> Calm down. All right. You've no, gone I mean, too far, Graham. You've gone too far. Joe, but my question was going to be, like, would LAFC let Klopp build the identity he wants and, like, just give him the keys? But the answer is yes, and every MLS team probably would. And that's where it is a sort of tricky one to answer. I went the route Graham did, a team that's been very good historically, but haven't been as good recently. So he has sort of license to do as he wants. Budget limitations mean they can't spend as big as others, but can still spend. They've got some proven talent, but then they've got some talent that's willing to work and prove themselves. It's DC United. I think we can all agree. DC United is the (laughs) obvious answer to this question. And it's it's where Jurgen Klopp not your Klinsman, uh, should end up. The one that really actually did make a ton of sense, aside from DC United, and maybe not even sense, but I could just see it going really, really well, was Atlanta. And that was my original answer until I realized that they play on turf. And I do think Jurgen Klopp is probably enough of a purist that he wouldn't enjoy the turf aspect of things. So I did sort of rule out turf yeah. teams as a result. But man... The uh, Mercedes-Benz Arena, I believe it is. I forget if it's a stadium or an arena. Stadium. I forget which one's which. Thank you. The spaceship. Yes, that one. I, the, just how loud that would get when he drives home the spike and 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 the atmosphere that would be created with him in there and the intensity of a high-pressing Atlanta United team would be fun. You would just need them playing on grass to, I think, really yeah. turn his head. That plastic pitch would be would be blamed for every single bad yes. result. Given that this is say, a man who's blamed the wind and Alison Becker's cold feet for bad results in the Premier League. 
conversely, Graham, I was going to say it would actually alleviate a lot of blame because his, his complaints about grass is it's too long or too short. He can keep that turf very consistent. And those conditions, there'll be no wind inside the Atlanta Sphincter Stadium. So, <laughs> oh, wow. so the there would be... Yeah, there's a lot of rubber crumb in that sphincter, though. Uh, (laughs) What is happening? (laughs) Now it's my turn. Let's uh, (laughs) let's move on, shall we? Uh, Thank you very much, John, for that question. Uh, Just to say, uh, I think um, LAFC is a good fit as well. I think that is it a three-one-five-two, Joe. The fans behind the thirty-two-fifty-two, thirty-two-fifty-two. They are awesome. So I can imagine him making some awesome banners and making some great noise for him as well. Can you imagine him turning up to parking? at that stadium for the first time wow. how much fifty two hundred dollars my goodness my goodness no amount of hugs from will ferrell is gonna alleviate the pain of that parking situation at the lfc stadium thank you very much john for that question we go now to eric Munils, who has another jürgen question you've hinted at it a lot says eric but can you explain your concerns with jürgen klinsman's time as u.s coach I'd argue with a Michael Bradley back pass against Portugal and Mondo making a 0.6 XG shot against Belgium, he's remembered as the best USMNT coach of all time with a, with a World Cup and three victories and two against European teams. I am placing my safety belt on. I am buckled down. The pilot has switched on the light, Taylor. I hand it over mm-hmm. to you. Clear out. Taylor Isa. Yeah. Let's go. Looking uh, forward to this. I, I sort of can't tell if Eric is actively trying to troll me to get me to go off on a rant because <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> I didn't really go on a rant when we talked about Jurgen Klinsmann when it comes to uh, his Korea tenure. To the question itself, let's just start with that question. The Michael Bradley backpass is one of the most misdirected points of anger, I think, in USMNT history. Like, there are so many other things that go wrong in that sequence. I remember people at the time being like, Bradley gave it away. Bradley choked the game away. It was not Michael Bradley. It was a series of calamitous events, which is partly explained because Jurgen Klinsmann didn't bunker down. He didn't make defensive substitutions. When you're winning a game like that, you follow the game plan if there's a game plan. But there wasn't a game plan because there was never a game plan when Jurgen Klinsmann was the coach. It was go out and play good soccer and be better than the other team. And you got to want it more and you got to play harder. To the Belgium point... They are still in that game because Tim Howard makes, I believe, 6,000 saves. That is the only reason why they are even close to getting through that one. That has nothing to do with tactical management or game plan prep or nullifying opposition threats. It is entirely Tim Howard standing on his head. And that, again, is a hallmark of Jurgen Klinsmann's time in charge of the U.S. It is relying on individuals to go out and do something. It's literally what he tells Christian Pulisic when they're losing in the uh, Copa America Centenario. Go out and have fun and try to make things happen. I can't imagine any other manager in the world being allowed to get away with that. And that really goes to the heart of the issue for me with Jurgen Klinsmann is that there was never any sort of tactical preparation or consistent tactical preparation. There was no consistency from camp to camp, even game to game. There were different formations. There were different approaches. There were different styles. There were different lineups that were shuffled without really any sort of consideration for the fact that you're dealing with humans. So when you drop Carlos Belconegro, the long-term captain, right before a pivotal World Cup uh, World Cup hex game, and then you're confused why the team looks disorganized when you play a defense that's never played together, it, it's all sort of a failure to account for the human aspect of things. And, and dropping Landon Donovan really unceremoniously before the 2014 World Cup, and then assuming that won't have an impact on squad morale. Like, so many different articles come out Uh, before the 2014 World Cup and then after the failure to qualify in 2018 about how much he had divided the locker room, how much there was a German-American divide that he kind of played into and didn't help 
uh, play down, how much he had alienated certain personalities and how much training was based on what he was into in the moment, how often he would change what he wanted to do from one camp to the next. It just led to a feeling of chaos. It led to a feeling of uncertainty about anything that was happening. And it also led to an air of we can't ask questions or he'll get mad. Kyle Martino publicly criticizes him and then is banned from attending press conferences. That's how much you're not allowed to sort of publicly speak about Jurgen Klinsmann when he's in charge. And so all of those are reasons why I feel like he was not a good manager and still doesn't get the sort of, I don't know, negative credit that he deserves because I do think it's a lot of the reason why I like Greg Berhalter is because he comes in with a plan, with a style he wants to play. You can have issues with that style and and issues with nuances thereof. But at the same time, when players know what's being asked of them, know what's expected of them, and then can improve on performance from camp to camp, look at someone like Tim Weah, who has done just that. I see players getting better, and I think, and I see a squad getting more consistent and stronger as time goes on. And I think the opposite was very much the case for Jurgen Klinsmann. So, sorry, Taylor, I wasn't listening to any of that. You're saying he is the best USMNT coach of all time. That's the gist, right? Uh, he's one of the winningest, I think. That, that is definitely true. Sixty-four <laughs> percent win ratio over ninety-eight games. I'm. I agree with everything Taylor said. To be honest, although I'll admit I don't know the intricacies of the Michael Bradley back pass or the tactical setup for that game or the context, so I'm not. I'm not going to dive into that particular point. But the crazy thing about all this, well, Taylor's correct. The two lines in my notes, knowing full well that Taylor was going to ISO for this question, uh, were poor tactician and poor communication. That seems to be the the TLDR from players and basically everybody who was around Jordan Klinsman during his time in charge of the U.S. And, and probably those things still apply today. Uh, with that being said, I think there is some truth to the premise that seems to be behind Eric's question. If Wando scores that goal against Belgium, while completely taking your point, Taylor, about Tim Howard standing on his head in that game, because he did and the U.S. did not play well, they were the second best team on the field by a huge margin. If that happens, like in the U.S. make it one game further in that World Cup, we maybe, I don't know if we're giving yeah. Jurgen Klinsmann complete credit for that because I don't think he would deserve it. But we always talk about coaches as if they're the chess players, right? They're the one moving all the pieces. Players are chess pieces. When in reality, that's wrong. That is just fundamentally not how this sport works. But those are still the prevailing narratives, no matter how much you know we might try to fight back against them. So if Jurgen Klinsmann is the guy to take the U.S. further in a World Cup than they've been in X number of World Cups, like that, that matters a lot to a lot of people, even though maybe it shouldn't. So I do think there's a reality that we're living in where Jurgen Klinsmann is like the, not hero, but is a part of of like a really special moment in U.S. soccer history and does get credit for that, even if maybe he doesn't deserve it. That wouldn't have been the furthest they'd ever gone because they go to the quarters under Bruce Arena. Yeah, I just said but, the furthest in X number of, of World Cups, right? The, like, the, I, the, yeah. Yeah, the problem, though, would be, as we see with Bruce Arena, who I think was the consensus best coach the U.S. had ever had right up until he wasn't when the U.S. failed to qualify, is that... It matters when you go second cycle, what happens next? And even if the U.S. had beat Belgium, even if they made it to the next round, and then maybe they go out in penalties or something like that, and we see Klinsman as like, oh, okay, maybe he did get the best out of this team. The issues that were very much prevalent in 2017 were there in 2013, and there were already divides in the locker room. There was already frustration with his tactics and approach, and I still think, regardless of what happens in 2014, we don't qualify for the World Cup because I think he has even more license and even more power, and maybe U.S. soccer waits even longer to to decide he is not the guy for us and to bring in somebody else. It's just that at this point with U.S. managers – it's not a deep pool in terms of success and who has been the best. So like 
when, when we're talking about best U.S. managers of all time, I, I, Klinsman might be in the top four. He might be in the top three. He's not for me, but I think there are arguments why he could be uh, just because Bruce Arena comes back in and sort of tarnishes his reputation the way he does. Bob Bradley has the criticisms he has. Like maybe it's Bora, Bora Militinovich in 1994. Maybe that's the that's one we should be po- pointing Callahan, to as the best surely. manager. Oh, yes, I can't believe course, we've gone this far course, without mentioning Patches or Hula Big yes, East course, yeah. legend, BJ Callahan. Thank you. <laughs> all, right, all right, Graham, uh, there are pigeons here. You have the opportunity to put a cat amongst them right now. What are your thoughts? Oh, there's no way I'm going to do that. There's <laughs> nothing people uh, hate more than an outsider who disagrees with people who know more about the the subject matter. And clearly Taylor I mean, and Joe know more on this You covered Jürgen Klinsmann for the New York yeah. Times, Graham yeah. Ruffin. You know stuff about yeah. this topic. And, and, I know, I'm, but this and I'm emotionally invested. There's an argument that like a neutral point of view can be good when you remove emotion to objectively evaluate. I just want you to know that if you do that and try to tell me he was good, I'll fight I will, you. Yeah, I was going to follow <laughs> that up with, with that being said, Graham, Taylor is also correct, so I probably would wouldn't disagree with him if I were you. See, I've acknowledged my bias with Klinsman previously. He he was like nice to me as a young reporter, and so I will always remember that. But I accept all the criticisms of uh, of Jurgen Klinsman. I think more than anything else, trying to evaluate the first half of Jurgen Klinsman's time as as USMNT manager kind of just encapsulates how silly major tournaments are and how silly it is to base opinions of like players and managers and really anything off major tournaments. And I know that seems almost like uh, counterintuitive because major tournaments matter more than anything else. But it's just such a small sample size. So many weird things can can happen. I was trying to, Taylor, when you were mentioning the, the Belgium performance, which I do remember Tim Howard making so many saves in that game. Obviously, the US are drawn in the group of death at that tournament. They're in, the, in with, there with um, Germany, Portugal and, and Ghana. And they make it out that group. And that's two years before. It's Portugal that don't get through right Germany get through um, because they end up winning it of course Um, that's a Portugal team that are two years out from winning the Euros it's Cristiano Ronaldo in in his peak so that is some form of achievement but I'm trying to remember I remember the moments in those games like the the Jermaine Jones um, stunner I can't really remember the the standard of performance. Were the US lucky in those matches, or the, particularly the match against Portugal? Was that a lucky draw that they got in that game? Or this is a genuine question, by the well, way. It's I mean, not leading. I can't really remember. That's where the question is coming from. Is they're up two to one, like really late in the game? I'm not sure if it was actually into injury time or about to get there when uh, Bradley like basically miscontrols a, a ball, and then Portugal are able to counterattack and score. But that did feel like it was against the run of play. In the sense that like Portugal hadn't been particularly effective. Like I don't again, I don't think the US were doing specific things to frustrate Portugal and to nullify their approach. It was much more the standard work really hard, run a lot, outrun the opponent, outmuscle the opponent, and then take your chances as they come in the form of a Jermaine Jones screamer. So like I, I think that's really what I keep going back to is that as much as he was a motivator and a and a smooth talker and a good talker, I, I don't think he ever set the US up to be tactically adept and I don't think he set them up to be tactically prepared. That's a thing we go back to time and time again, where there's like Bradley and Jermaine Jones calling a huddle before a game to be like, okay, here's how we're going to try to play because we've gotten no instructions. Um, I just that's where I I sort of start to get uh, even more frustrated. And while I'm frustrated, I'll also continue. There's a really good quote from The Ringer uh, that breaks down 
the failure to qualify. Uh, many of Klinsman's innovations from motivational speakers to yoga classes, fitness regimens, strict nutrition controls, and constantly evolving <laughs> tactical schemes were introduced one day and forgotten the next. It was hard for players to tell whether a Klinsman decision was calculated creative disruption or just the whim of a coach who woke up with a new idea. And that is the other thing that I have the most frustration with. I really don't love when people throw out ideas and then they're just like, I'm a contrarian. I'm just asking questions. And that feels like what Klinsman would do and then couch it as creative disruption. I'm going to like upset you and see how you respond. And and if that's like the, if there's a plan behind that, if there's a goal behind that, maybe even then I'm not a huge fan, but it felt like it was just sort of trying stuff to see what happened and to get a response. And then you can always sort of frame it as I'm a different thinker. I'm a, I'm a creative mind. And I'm just not sure that's a, a, a brush I want to paint your Klinsman with. All right, Eric, thank you very much indeed for that question. We take a break now. When we come back, we've got plenty more, including chat about Christian Pulisic and our worst takes ever. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome to our listener questions. Welcome back, I should say. If you're only joining us at this point, you've got some uh, minus 30 button pressing to do. Zachary Bates has joined the conversation and asks who has been better for AC Milan this season, Rafael Liao or Christian Pulisic? Uh, Liao is clearly the more skilled player with a higher ceiling but it seems like Pulisic is having a more impactful season for the club. What are your thoughts? Asks Zachary. Uh, Joe, it's a good question. Pulisic with uh, seven goals and six assists. Assists, we call them now for Christian. Uh, Across all competitions. Uh, What do you think? I I thought this was a straightforward question, but it's not when you get into it. It's pretty darn close, right? Like you look at the the total contributions between the two players. Pulisic does have the edge in goals. Six goals, five assists in Serie A specifically compared to three goals and seven assists for Rafael Leal. They each have a goal in the Champions League. So like... 
Pulisic has the edge when you look at just the raw box score stats. Leao has still done a better job of more regularly getting himself and his teammates into dangerous areas in the final third. So in my mind, those things pretty much even out. What I will say is, this so far for me has been a success for Christian Pulisic in, in Milan, right? Like he is sort of where a lot of folks, myself included, thought he could be this year. I think he is playing up to basically his potential. He's been fairly consistent. He's been a regular starter, generally positively impacting games on the wing for AC Milan. That, that's good news, right? I, I think Leao on the other side of the equation is very much having a down season. He's got three league goals. He had 15 league goals last year. He is absolutely not on pace to get near that total this season. I think the difference between expectation and performance for Rafael Leao in particular colors the analysis of him, and rightfully so, but when you factor in Christian Pulisic's performances and, and you compare the two and just what they've actually produced on the field, Pulisic maybe has the slightest of edges, but I don't yeah. know that there's a massive gap there. I think that's absolutely spot on, Joe. I think it probably comes down to perception. Pulisic hasn't been this effective for a good number of seasons, so we look at his form favourably, whereas, as you mentioned, Joe Liao, this season has been a bit of a drop-off for him, so we're we're not so warm on, on his form at the moment. And even the, the timing of this question, I think if you asked me or us this question a couple of weeks ago, we, went, we might have been firmer on Pulisic. He'd won the Serie A Player of the Month awards. Um, this question comes after a game against Napoli where Rafael Leao was one of the best players on the pitch and the, he assists the, the winner. So both players have had inconsistencies over the course of the season. I think my conclusion is there's not much uh, between them when you look at their goal contributions. And also we've watched quite a bit of AC Milan this season, the eye test as well. They are pretty similar yeah. in terms of their contribution for AC Milan at the moment. Taylor, would you concur with that? I wonder if our thoughts on Pulisic are, are uh, biased in some way because he is performing above par, maybe... Uh, great, he's having a better, better impact for Milan than we may have expected. I think I'm, yeah, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, I think I'm inclined to like downplay what Pulisic does. And so it makes me uncomfortable to say that I, I think I give the edge to Pulisic uh, in terms of this question. Um, I, I hear where Joe and Graham are coming from, and I think they are largely correct, that it is really difficult to separate them. Pulisic has more goals, but then Leo has more assists, even their defensive numbers. Pulisic, more tackles, more recoveries, more interceptions. Leo has better pressing numbers, especially in the attacking third. And so... If anything, I think they complement each other really well. I think Giroud is probably their best and most important player from Milan this season. <laughs> but I think that we're saying there's not a noticeable divide between the two is already a really exciting thing for USMNT fans and for people who've been waiting for Christian Pulisic to sort of reach the level that we hoped he could. I hope there's more still to come. But I think like Rafael Leao is a player that I suggested could be a capable Kylian Mbappe replacement if he leaves PSG. That's a player they might go after. And to say that that player who could be an Mbappe replacement is potentially being outperformed by Christian Pulisic, it's a very exciting thing. It's one that makes me deeply uncomfortable because I do then wonder, am I just biased? Am I just rooting for for an American to do things? But I don't think that's the case. I think it is pretty close. Uh, and I give the edge to Pulisic uh, because goals and definitely not because of red, white and blue glasses. Also, he does have a Shelby GT Mustang. Uh, I, to my knowledge, he's the only one of the two yeah. has one of those. So that gives him the edge also. Edge and you've spoken out. to his dad edge once, so that gives him the edge as well. And you yeah. uh, My post, cl close personal friend, Christian Pulisic's dad. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we, we get along like a house on fire. Thank you very much, Zachary, for that question. One more on this episode from Trent McJivers, the old fifth member of the Backstreet Boys there, Taylor. Trent McJivers. <laughs> uh, thinking back on your illustrious careers and yours too, Ryan. 
rude. <laughs> That's good stuff. What was your absolute worst? <laughs> yeah, whatever. What was your absolute worst, most garbage take? Now, Graham, I, this is a really mm. hard question for me to address because mostly the things I say come to pass and I'm, I'm very <laughs> good, very, very accurate with, with my takes on the All world right. of soccer. All right, okay. What, the one I thought about a lot was the Ronaldo versus Messi debate. And I would the hill to die on for me for many years was that Ronaldo was a superior player because Wrong. I felt like he... Yeah, I felt like he offered more in terms of like the aerial game and like dragging True. Portugal to that title. This is before Messi won a World Cup as well. I I don't feel that same way anymore. I'm not so sure if it's my most garbage take, but it's certainly one um, I, I ruin lament. Um, I get where you're coming from. That take has not aged particularly well. But there was mm. there was a time when it wasn't ridiculous to suggest that. In terms of plug and play, Ronaldo versus Messi, you would rather put Ronaldo in a team and he'd score 30 goals in a season than than Messi, who maybe needs a few more things around him to operate. That was at least back in the day. I think now Messi has certainly aged. The final phase of his career has been a lot better than Cristiano Ronaldo's, I and it's not, not a debate anymore. I am not enjoying this segment so far, fellas, yeah. just to be Can very just say, clear. If it helps at all... Ryan has had way worse takes than the one that he no, just said was no. his worst take. I was just thinking, this is making this. I'm seething with rage inside at, at this discussion at the moment. I don't know what you mean. You're wow. young, Joe. You don't remember these 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 times when it was, there was a debate. Now there's not a Ronaldo debate. Ronaldo is all, like but... the Ronaldo needs a supply line. Messi is the supply line and the goal scorer. Who was making the argument that Ronaldo was the plug and play option? I don't understand. Uh, bye bye. Ronaldo scored 25 goals in that garbage season for Manchester United. He was one of the top scorers in the Premier League. Like he just, he does score goals. I don't quite understand it all the time. I, I hate that I have to ask this, Graham. Which garbage season are you referring to? <laughs> <laughs> the first the first one. <laughs> okay. The first one. I mean, the, the one he, where he didn't give the interview to Piers Morgan. The uh, one before gotcha. that. Because even like going back to before he moves, like he does become the figure for Manchester United. Joe, I take your point. There is still service required, but there are also 40 yard goals that he hits out of nowhere and goals that he creates by going on a 70 yard dribble. There was a time. There was a time when you could say it was close or you could make an argument for Ronaldo. Not that. Yeah. I, I ever did, because I don't think I ever uh, waded into that argument, because I didn't much care. They were both quite good. I'm fine with that. Joe's going to love this as an argument uh, no. point here, right? I'm but so The Ballon d'Or, Joe's no. favorite competition. Graham, what are you doing right now? <laughs> I am not using this point to demonstrate that he was better. I am using it to demonstrate that there was a legitimate debate for a while. They so were between jumping 2013, off the cliff too. Mom, so between 2013 and 2017, Ronaldo won four out of five Ballon d'Ors and Messi won one. That's the period where the people would argue there is a legitimate debate between the two. As I've admitted... It aged poorly beyond that point, and clearly Messi is the much better player, and always has been the better player. But there was a debate for a while. It wasn't. It, it wasn't ridiculous at that time. Uh, Graham, that was as we've established. That was definitely my worst take I've ever had. How about you? Oh, there's just simply too many to, to choose from. I am a man who predicted Nigeria would crash out of the group stage in, in AFCON and they made a run to, to the final. Um, there will be some honking takes through the years from me, but I guess I can only remember the relatively recent ones. Um, Graham Potter. I thought he was going to work out a lot better for Chelsea than ended up being the case. I think I just underestimated oh, yeah. how much Me of a too. mess Chelsea are. Um, where last season it's felt like, oh, maybe if they get the right manager, they'll they'll pick up again. But that hasn't happened even, even under Pochettino. Along similar lines, 
Anthony at Manchester United. I feel like Joe might be in yep. the same boat as me here. Uh, in my defence, I always thought they'd grossly overpaid for him, but he's been a complete flop, certainly, this season. I don't know whether it's Manchester United that have ruined him or whether I misjudged him at, at, at Ajax, but I don't know. That, that, that's that been that's been a bad one. Um, a couple question. more. <laughs> <laughs> a couple more. Um, there's another Manchester United one here, Yay. quickly, Taylor. I thought there was a chance Jose Mourinho would get the better of Guardiola at Manchester United. I should really stop having what? takes on Manchester United in Graham. general. When, when Guardiola <laughs> was appointed at Manchester City in 2016, I remember arguing, well, there's the only one person my United can go and get, and that's Jose Mourinho. Because they had there had been that Barcelona a Real Madrid thing where he ultimately had won a title against Guardiola so anyway that was a bad take I also held on to Nicholas Bentner stock for way way longer than I should have and honestly I blame FIFA because he was always weirdly good in that game and so I thought uh, he might be turn out to be a good player and he did not turn out to be a good player and here's my final one Ryan you might be able to empathize with this I thought Big Sam was the perfect appointment for England I will always maintain that he would have been good just a few years earlier when England had a really poor team and playing like a a conservative, almost reductive way would have actually suited that group of players. Then he took over and it was just as talent was starting to come through. And uh, the pint of wine moment is surely one of the biggest sliding door moments in recent English football history because I don't think there's any way England achieve what they do or what they have under Southgate if it's uh, Big Sam in charge. They would have achieved more, Graham. It's not a garbage take. I'm with you on that one. It still stands. It still stands. Uh, Joe, uh, your your garbage takes, if you will. All right, my list. Anthony was on my list as well. Graham, that's that's a good shout and one that I I rue to this day. Uh, I I thought there was a time where Isco was maybe going to become like the best player on the planet, and that never really materialized. But Isco Disco was great fun for for quite some time, and it's still very good in La Liga, by the way. Uh, Qatar maybe doing something in the 2022 World Cup. I don't know that I ever predicted on the show that they would make a run. But I was definitely the most Qatar open of the four of us, and uh, that that take did not age at all. Mm. It aged like milk. Uh, I had the Galaxy finishing second in the West last year, which David Goss likes to bring up with some regularity. That was exceedingly incorrect, and they were terrible. In uh, my, my last one that I had sort of on this on the list that came to mind quickly, because there are many more out there, I'm sure. Gideon Zalalem still turning into something when he came back to MLS after being in Europe. He came back with NYCFC. And I still believed, fellas. I still believed that he could do something, and I was I was very wrong. Yeah, Joe. Every USMNT fan has a player or a yep. couple players that they were like, "This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for, and it's all going to make the difference." Oh yeah. And then very rarely does that end up being the case. For me, I, I think one of my like. Worst takes, but for maybe the right reasons, was that uh, losing out on Jonathan Gonzalez was yes, going I was to be just like about to say that a hammer blow to the U.S. That L3 were going to be the dominant team, and he was going to be this critical midfielder for them. Uh, I had to Google where he plays now, and I think it's still Monterey, but he's been on loan at a bunch of places, and yep. it hasn't really gone the way I expected. Yeah, I had I when you mentioned like oh you know what are the other USMNT players that people bring yeah. up Jonathan Gonzalez I was I was pretty sure that a Jonathan Gonzalez Tyler Adams Weston McKinney midfield oh, yeah. was going to like be the truth That's after it. that World Cup failure except like the profiles don't really fit there to be honest and that was probably yeah, that. never going to work but uh, I remember thinking okay losing this guy is like a really really big deal and it kind of was at the time and I think there was, was real change that needed to happen. So I think there's some justification there, but my evaluation of Jonathan Gonzalez and his career was incorrect. It really is that Tyler Adams evolved into the player he, he evolved into. Because at the time, it was basically, we have no number six outside of Michael Bradley who isn't really that either. 
what are we going to do? Here's this guy who could take over right away. But it ended up being pretty okay, I would say. Uh, in terms of other bad takes for me, Fred to be the Golden Boot winner at the 2014 World Cup is a pretty bad one. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel Obertan to be a capable replacement for Cristiano Ronaldo at Manchester United <laughs> has not uh, yet come uh-huh, true. Uh-huh. We'll see what happens. Uh, <laughs> Bruce Arena will fully turn things around in 2018 World Cup qualifying. That was also... Oh not meant to be probably the one that i i feel like i have to have said at some point and really has not held up is it can't get any worse for manchester united than it is with david moyes in charge and i i think it, it was pretty bad i'm not going to say it's gotten significantly better in the ensuing years so the idea that he was the problem is is a pretty bad take on my part yeah, I also should note that I did say in the 2022 World Cup that Lucas Paqueta would be Brazil's you did. star and MVP. That Yeah, that I'm pretty sure that happened. I don't remember. Uh, also, that I think I had a pretty big stake on Tottenham finishing uh, above Man you United did. last season, which also did not come to pass. Those were not my finest, shall we say. <laughs> Anywho, thank you very much, Trent, for that question. Plenty more chat about this and much more on our Discord, patreon.com slash Show. Thank you for supporting us via that medium if you do so. Uh, that is listener questions. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for answering them. Thank you, Ryan. Graham Rutherford, pleasure as always, my good man. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Taylor Rockwell, thank you for keeping the Klinsman chat to under 15 minutes. <laughs> Oh, you are welcome. Jurgen, if you're listening, which I assume you are, I apologize, but also I don't apologize. Sorry, not sorry. There we go, listener. Thank you again for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye! Bye!